Hey, welcome to episode nine of Terminal Talk. And today we have Dave Sermon, who's the distinguished engineer for Parallel Sysplex. And this is a deep, deep dive right here. You know, we, we said we're going to be kind of all over the place with high-level deep dives. This is definitely a deep dive, so put on your snorkel and your swim fins, you know. Uh, we're, we're going in on this one. You're going to, there's a ton of information. Yeah, and it's something that everybody should know about because Parallel Sysplex is one of the key differentiators of the mainframe. If you're working on the mainframe platform and you don't know what Parallel Sysplex is, uh, this should be this should be fairly enlightening. And we've had a lot of people on the platform who talk about it, who are very passionate about it, and it becomes very obvious in the way they talk because they're so aflame with it. What you're going to find from Dave is something much more precise, much more uh, considered, much more well thought out. Oh yeah, so don't don't take his delivery for anything other than that. He is he wants to make sure he's putting out information in the most precise, concise, and accurate way possible. It's precise. Yeah. I this is I absolutely wish I could go back in time and just hand myself a um, I guess it would be a CD at the time <laughs> with this podcast and say, look, here's parallel sysplex. You know, stop asking people, you know, a, a bit at a time. You'll get caught up to date on it. It's this is going to be so helpful for so many people out there. I have a feeling. Yeah, if you if if there was one episode that really one episode, if there was one episode, <laughs> we're keep, we're going to keep doing it, aren't we? <laughs> if there's if there's <laughs> if there's one episode that you really must learn from an educational perspective, I think you're going to find this is that episode. Yep. So, without further ado, we have Dave Sermon, Distinguished Engineer for Parallel Sysplex. Coming at you live from Poughkeepsie, New York, here's Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. Okay, we're here with Dave Sermon, uh, a Distinguished Engineer of the ZOS Core Technology, uh, focused primarily on Parallel Sysplex. Thanks for coming, Dave. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. So let's start with the obvious question. Everybody talks about parallel sysplex like it's something awesome. What is it and why is it so important? Okay. So so ZOS parallel sysplex is a way of taking multiple ZOS operating system images and the, the software stack that runs on them and uh, hooking them together and harnessing them so that they can process as if they were one large, highly scaled system. They can process a common workload. They can process against a common authoritative set of data. Um, so it's really all about scalability, uh, being able to grow workloads beyond a single software or hardware image, and it's about continuous availability as well. Well, so, yeah, but people say to me all the time, but don't I get that kind of thing on Amazon? It's always there. And oh, how would you contrast this to that to that kind of clustering model? Yeah, and if, if it's if it's so uh, great and powerful, how come we haven't seen it? You know, in in other platforms. So um, the way the way I think about that, um, I think parallel sysplex uh, takes one of the really hard problems, which is how do you maintain an authoritative single copy of the data with integrity and coherency. Um, you know, without having to replicate the data and lose some of that authoritativeness 
um, as, as is sometimes done in these cloud environments. With parallel SysPlex, what we have is a mechanism for sharing the same set of data across multiple systems, serializing all of the activity and the updates to that data so that, you know, one transaction at a time somewhere in the SysPlex can access that data, can make updates to that data, can maintain the uh, integrity of that data. Um, while the other ones are able to see the results of that update with co consistency and coherency. Uh, in order to do that, uh, there's a set of uh, hardware technology associated with that. Um, you may have heard the terms coupling facility and coupling link technology uh, used in connection with parallel sysplex. Those are um, appliances, if you will, that sysplex uses to perform some of those functions that I just talked about um, to allow data to be shared across the sysplex. The coupling facility provides both uh, sysplex-wide serialization functions, um, but it also provides uh, data caching functions, data consistency and coherency functions, and it also provides um, shared queue and workload distribution mechanisms. Um, so that work can be seamlessly uh, sprayed across the parallel sysplex environment. Uh, work can execute on any system that it happens to, to land on uh, for execution. Hey, could, you, could you talk a little bit about the, the mechanism that ties it together, the, the relationship between structures and uh, the links and the timer and, and how, that, how those connect? Sure. Um, it's a big question, but I'll, I'll take a crack at it. It's a big it. system. Um, so, so yeah, um, the, the coupling facility provides the hardware infrastructure for a lot of these uh, capabilities. And, and I'll sort of break off timing and talk about that uh, separately uh, yeah. a little bit later. Um, so the when, when it's a good time, <laughs> so to speak. So, so the coupling facility provides uh, lock structures, list structures, and cache structures. And, and those are used at the discretion of the different pieces of uh, software, the, the middleware, and even application-level software if, if necessary, um, you know, in, in order to provide the functions that it needs to share data and, and share work across the sysplex. Um, one of the, one of the underpinnings of Sysplex, um, you know, one of the goals of Sysplex when we worked on it, uh, from the beginning back in the, the early 90s, um, was that to the greatest extent possible, uh, we would make it application transparent, right? Mm -hmm. So that if you had a, a Kix application or an IMS application or whatever, um, that it could just do what it did. And the, the nest, the, the middleware, the software stack around it would incorporate the use of the coupling facility in order to provide these, these serialization and data sharing capabilities. So that application transparency, um, you know, we haven't always achieved that. There have been cases where, uh, customers have needed to tune their applications and, and make, uh, changes to remove affinities to, to different systems in their sysplex. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the goal was that we would make changes in the middleware um, that, that sort of changed the application execution environment and, and SysPlex enabled it around the applications. But, but basically, um, if you think of it that way, the application uh, is, is touching data and it's sharing work, 
right? right. So, so what you want to be able to do is um, maintain the integrity of data as, as it flows through the sysplex. Think about DB2. Each, each DB2 member, each DB2 instance in, in a sysplex has its own local caches in memory on a ZOS system. And in that local cache, there's some data, right, that, mm-hmm. that's being uh, referenced by transactions that are occurring on that system. When, when they make an update, when, when the DB2 member makes an update to that data, what it needs to do is go out and look in other DB2 members' local caches and represent the fact somehow that, that that data that they have a copy of is now stale, that it's been changed. It's no longer valid. Mm-hmm. And the coupling facility provides the coherency mechanism to do that. When a, when a changed, updated copy of the data gets written out to the coupling facility, the coupling facility broadcasts an invalidation to all the other DB2 members that have an interest in that piece of data. That takes care uh, not only of some of the coherency uh, of data across the sysplex, but that cache in the coupling facility can also be um, a, a second place with which the data can be accessed quickly at CPU synchronous speeds. If DB2 tries to reference a piece of data and it's not resident in, in the local cache on its own local system, DB2 tries to read it from the group buffer pool cache out in the coupling facility. Yeah. And if the data is there, then you know it had almost as uh, first-class access as if it had been in local memory. Another thing that uh, the DB2 uh, and all of the data sharing uh, middleware does is they serialize data, right? So you can't have different systems updating the same piece of data right. at a time or, or what you end up with is a mess. Kind of important. Right, kind of important. <laughs> So uh, for that purpose, there's lock structures, and, and DB2 makes use of a lock structure that protects uh, each of the pages in a, a database down at a very granular level. Um, you know, it could be a page level. It could be a row level uh, in some table that DB2 is using across the sysplex. And that's just a, like a flag that said that says, I'm working on this, come mm-hmm. back later? Yeah, so, so what happens is that, that interest on the part of one, one of the members gets reflected out in the uh, coupling facility lock structure. Um, if another member comes along and tries to express an interest in the same resource at the same time, the coupling facility detects that as a conflict, and that conflict then gets managed by the, the software so that only one member at a time gets that access to the data. And this is important, right, because this is the, the difference between eventual consistency, which is what we normally see in cloud systems, uh, especially cloud databases, and what we see in, in our mainframe environment, right? So I, I, the focus right, on right. the data. Right, right. With Sysplex, the, the consistency isn't eventual. The, the consistency is Actual. continual, <laughs> ongoing. <laughs> And that that contention that uh, what was the word they ex- it it expressed an interest in the in the data that that's what's reflected when you do like a DGRSC. Um, so so you're referring now to um, to another Sysplex function. I don't mean to push ahead here. No, that, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, so 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 there's different kinds of lock structures that gets get, get used for different purposes, right? So I was kind of. Um, 
you know, exploring the context of a database manager who's serializing records and uh, rows in a database. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also in a sysplex uh, another lock structure that's exploited by GRS to do uh, some of the other application serialization APIs that are supported for a, a ZOS system, NQ and DQ uh, for GRS global resource sharing cool. environments. So a different lock structure reflects interest in NQs and, and gives up that interest when, when the resource is DQ'd. Wow. So, so, you know, the same basic primitive of, of a coupling facility lock structure is employed uh, one way by DB2 to serialize DB2 tables, maybe a little bit differently by GRS to, to do its level of serialization, um, and so on for the other data managers and uh, products that do some form of serialization across the sysplex. And, and the cache structures, too, um, have that same feel to them. There's different ways of exploiting the cache uh, structure and the coupling facility as well that are used by exploiters like um, DB2, IMS data management, uh, vSAM record-level sharing, vSAM RLS. There's a few other exploiters of cache structures as well. The, the third type of uh, structure that the coupling facility supports is uh, a list model, and, and it's a very general sort of primitive. Um, what it provides is a set of shared queues. Okay, so, so a given structure supports one or more of these shared queues into which objects and data can be uh, inserted, read, written, moved, deleted, uh, you know, you can use the primitives that the coupling facility uh, list structure supports to do all sorts of uh, data structure implementations, queues, stacks, uh, whatever you want to build, you can probably build with uh, the primitive of a coupling facility list structure. Yes, it's it's not hard to think of a use for something like that. <laughs> and and so, you know, it's, it's used... Uh, by a bunch of different middleware products uh, to distribute work around the sysplex through shared queue kinds of mechanisms. Um, it's used for message passing and uh, mailbox kind of activities, mm. right? It's, it's uh, probably the, the most common type of structure. Uh, used across the application, uh, the middleware set, I should say. Yeah. Well, let, let me uh, ask what I'm just going to say is a stupid question. <laughs> a, a structure is uh, obviously there's 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 primitives and it can be treated as different ways, but it's what what is it? So so basically, um, what a what a coupling facility structure is is you you express an interest in in the capability of provided by a list structure, a lock structure, or a cache structure. Um, you, you go out and you get an amount of storage. You, you get some storage out in the coupling facility that's used to implement the structure you've asked for. And you get a set of architected commands and responses that you can then execute uh, against that storage. So um, you can use that storage to create objects, delete objects, move objects around, um, in accordance with the architecture of the type of structure it is you've, you've allocated. Um, you know, if it's a lock structure, you're going to be obtaining locks. You're going to be creating recovery information associated with those locks that's used for transactional recovery purposes. Um, if it's a cache structure, you're going to be 
getting directory entries that keep track of which systems in the sysplex have an interest in a particular piece of data so that cross-invalidations can occur when someone updates that piece of data. You're going to be putting the actual data into data objects out in uh, the cache structure. If it's a list structure, you're going to have this set of queues. You can express how many queues you want to have. Um, you get a set of list entries and a set of data that goes along with those list entries that can be uh, queued in various ways uh, in accordance with the architecture. You uh, you said before uh, that this is a, a set of structures you can program to. Um, imagine, if you will, a world where people would actually let me write code. Um, <laughs> That's hard to imagine. Yeah, I, it is. I, I agree. Um, would I be writing to these things? Do I have to use assembler to do that? Or? Well, that so so that's the thing. Um, you know, as I said, to to a very great extent, um, the IBM middleware, you know, which is written either in assembler, assembler or PLX or any other uh, supported language, right? They they're the ones who are invoking the coupling facilities low level APIs to do those sharing functions, right? Um, the application, uh, for the most part, is just doing what it does. It's making calls to, uh, you know, to a file system or a data manager product, or it's making, uh, you know, it's it's sitting in a Kix region, perhaps doing all the Kix region things that it it does to perform its function, right? And then the middleware uh, under the covers realizes, oh, in this Sysplex environment that I'm operating in. In order to satisfy that data request, you know, I have to go do these things that involve the coupling facility, that involve getting sysplex scope serialization. I need to do these things that involve passing work from one system to another. Um, so, so for the most part, an application programmer uh, can be blissfully unaware mm-hmm. that, that any of this is going on under the covers. So as an application programmer, I, I don't really... I could have multiple instances of my code running in different nodes in the Plex and not have to write any special code to deal with it. Um, for the most part, that's true. Um, you know, so so the assumption behind that is that um, you, you you haven't built into your application some kind of affinity that says this particular piece of work, this particular transaction, you know, it. It has to come here to this one particular region in this one particular system of the sysplex in, in order to execute that thing. Um, you know, we call that an affinity when, when such a thing is built into an application. And, uh, you know, ferreting out and eliminating such affinities, um, you know, is a necessary part of sysplex enabling uh, an application if we find any uh, in the first place. But generally, I mean, if you think about the way uh, cloud applications are written today and and the idea of having this kind of stateless mm-hmm. environment, it kind of lends itself to um, playing well in a sysplex environment, right? Yeah, I, w- I would think that it would. And, and you know, you, you're on a good point there, right, that a lot of the applications that run in a cloud environment are, are designed to be kind of stateless and, and leave the hard problem of, you know, taking care of stateful things like authoritative uh, system of record data, 
you know, to a Sysplex. Yeah. <laughs> you mean like a, just a, a general load balancer out front won't take care of all that? <laughs> uh, probably not. No. <laughs> so you mentioned um, timing earlier, and I, I just wanted to circle around. The timer popped. And that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, in a, in a Sysplex, um, having a consistent view of time is, is kind of important. Uh, one of the reasons why it's important is because um, the data managers have logs that are used for transactional recovery and, and transactional consistency in that recovery. And so if you imagine um, a world where you have multiple data managers on multiple systems uh, executing concurrently and running transactions concurrently in parallel with each other, and they're logging all the updates to the data – if the clocks that they're using to timestamp those log records didn't have any consistency across systems, mm-hmm. um, then if you ever tried to reassemble that data from logs, what you would get would be a big mess, right? The, and, the idea of who came first in a lot of this is uh, pretty important. Right. <laughs> um, you, you know, so, so the most important, I think, aspect of Sysplex consistent time is – you know, being able to reassemble those logs if you need to uh, for for recovering data in, in a consistent order based on consistent time. And so um, in Sysplex, we have a function called um, the Server Time Protocol, STP, which is a firmware function that operates across the, the IBM Z uh, CACs. And what that function does is it exchanges timing signals across the systems over the same links that are used to talk to and from the coupling facility. Uh, and, and those time signals synchronize the, the system clocks on the different machines that participate in the sysplex. Um, and that, that synchronization is very, very close, very, very uh, precise across the sysplex. Now, back in the 90s, there was actually a piece of hardware that did that, right, the Sysplex timer? Yeah, back back in the early 90s when we started this, um, there there was a um, Sysplex timer. 9037 was the device number, if anyone still cares. <laughs> um, it, it was a separate uh, box that you had to connect into timing ports on the machines of that era, and it, it performed much the same function, exchanging the timing signals across the um, those special purpose timing links. Um, nowadays, that function has evolved a little bit. It's been it's been integrated into the Keck firmware itself, and and there's no separate hardware resource associated with that. Um, as I said, the messages, the timing signals flow over the coupling links instead. Uh, when I when I came in, uh, we had just switched over to STP, and people talked about the the mythical time timing box, and I I would just picture like a you know a, a wall clock with a pendulum swinging back and forth, with like a magnetic reed switch at the bottom and jacks on it. Can, can you can you maybe talk about the you mentioned the the links? Uh, mm-hmm. Is there a special type of link for a parallel sysplex? Yeah, um, so so the the coupling. Um, protocols that we have between the ZOS systems and the coupling facilities, um, you know, it was very important um, for performance, uh, among other reasons. It was very important that those be um, high bandwidth, low latency communications, right? We need to be able to get to and from the coupling facility very, very fast. 
And so from the beginning, from the very beginning, um, the design of the coupling links was for them to be fast enough, low latency enough, that we could do synchronous communication between the ZOS system out to the coupling facility, send a command, have it execute in the coupling facility, get a response sent back across the coupling link, and all the way back through the firmware in the ZOS system, do that fast enough that it could be done synchronously, CPU synchronously with respect to the unit of work that initiated the request, you know, and and avoid all the overhead of context switching and having to suspend and resume units of work and get yourself reestablished after the after you get redispatched. Right? It it really helped cut down the overhead and and make parallel sysplex an efficient proposition. Um, to have that synchronous access to the external device to the to the coupling facility, um, so that that concept has stayed with us um, across many different generations of coupling link technology uh, ever since then. Uh, just recently on Z13, uh, we introduced a, a new generation of coupling link technology, uh, replacing the InfiniBand coupling links we've been using for the last. 10 years or so, I guess. And, and you know, a, a similar concept has just recently been adopted by uh, Hyperlink uh, for I.O., where uh, we'll be providing synchronous access to some of the I.O. Uh, storage control uh, controller devices. What, what you just said about pro, um, doing things synchronously, you know, you, you, you kind of gloss over it because it's, it's what you've been working in, but that description alone right there, if, if somebody, anybody who's had to program... Uh, and deal with latency and, and checking and, and putting things aside and waiting, hearing that uh, has just got to blow their mind because it's, it, it really cuts to the heart of what is a problem that somebody has to deal with with latency. And it's, it's, I'm so glad you put it that way. It's very helpful. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's a very powerful thing, too, to be able to, um, you know, be able to go out and get a lock, you know, Get get back control indicating that you've got the lock. Go make some data updates, you know, and and do that all on a single thread of execution. Yeah, that's just you know running on the processor, doing what it needs to do out to the coupling facility, running on the processor some more. But you know, it, it really lets me focus on my code and not bookkeeping and and you know administrative type stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that's really important if you <laughs> you think about. Gee, I'm I'm programming to uh, a non-SQL database, and I'm always worried about: Do I have the latest version of the data? You know, when will I have the latest version of the data? And and the fact that that's never something to think about is really, from an application programmer's point of view, kind of important. Yeah. And then you know, for for those kind of functions where it makes sense. Uh, the coupling facility also does support an asynchronous API where you could, uh, for example, launch several requests in parallel to make different updates or do different things in the coupling facility um, and sort of, um, you know, fire them off, forget about them, and, and complete them whenever they complete back. Um, so we, we do have both capabilities, but but the preferred way is synchronous. And whenever you talk about uh, Sysplex, somebody invariably brings up GDPS. Mm-hmm. What is GDPS? 
Um, so GDPS stands for Geographically Dispersed Parallel Sysplex. And uh, GDPS kind of was built very much as a, um, you know, on top of the base infrastructure of Parallel Sysplex. Um, GDPS grew out of a uh, automation package, right? It, it, its function is to provide automation uh, for high availability, continuous availability, and disaster recovery. Um, so, so one of the things you can do with GDPS is take a sysplex, you know, several ZOS images across several CACs, um, and stretch it across two sites that are separated by kilometers, maybe tens of kilometers, um, and, you know, take your high availability sysplex environment and by putting it into two different sites also take advantage of it as a disaster recovery environment. If a failure of an entire physical site occurs, you still have the half of the sysplex that's, you know, running over in the other site, uh, you know, to continue operations with. So GDPS provides a set of capabilities around uh, monitoring the systems in the sysplex and monitoring the uh, behavior of a site at, at the site level um, to automate and speed up, uh, greatly speed up, recovery uh, from a disaster that affects a site. Yeah, so you said uh, tens of kilometers. I can't put one in New York and one in L.A. and expect them to work in, as a GDPS. So a sysplex um, is kind of a tightly coupled environment because of all of the coupling facility interactions we've been talking about here uh, today. So, so you know, taking a sysplex and trying to stretch it over hundreds of kilometers or thousands of kilometers introduces some really uh, very serious speed of light delays. In, <laughs> you guys in haven't doing, fixed that yet. Yeah. In doing that communication. <laughs> And, and while we're all about, you know, trying to make some of those protocols asynchronous where, where it makes sense and, um, you know, allow such things to be done over distance, uh, really for all practical purposes, uh, you know, a few tens of kilometers is, is the practical distance for a sysplex environment. Now, GDPS does support um, longer distance asynchronous data replication that can be used for a different form of disaster recovery that doesn't involve stretching one sysplex across multiple physical sites that are that far apart. So it can still be used to manage uh, the disk replication and so forth uh, to get the data um, copied over to another site asynchronously. But, yeah, are there customers uh, that you know of that are doing kind of uh, GDPS as a near – near and then one of these kind of asynchronous replication to so it's a near near far with it. Mm -hmm. yeah gdps has an umbrella of five or six different uh configurations reference configurations if you want to call them that that it supports um probably the simplest is the stretched sysplex across two sites separated by a few kilometers um, but but there's a lot of different configurations you can do. You can do um, asynchronous replication between two data centers that are far apart. 
You can do two that are close together and one that's further away using asynchronous replication. Um, lately, there have been uh, clients uh, exploring and using some of the foresight uh, approaches where you have two sites that are close together over here, then a long distance, two more sites over there that have a, a paired relationship with asynchronous replication between the two pairs of sites. Uh, and then if you flip-flop between the, the pairs of sites, each one has that redundancy across the two sites that are close together. And you can actually sort of flip-flop your data center operations from, you know, the two sites over here to the two sites over there. So, uh, so in, those, GDPS in those environments, uh, disaster recovery tests would be relatively simple, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's meant to be, um, you know, clear, clearly it's all around continuous operations, but it but it's also about uh, making the testing and setup for that continuous operations as seamless as possible. There's there's a, a certain client that we work with that uh, uses GDPS, and uh, they 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 love telling us about when it's when it's a disaster recovery test day at their site. Um, there's there's them and there's the distributed guys. And the distributed guys, it takes, you know, all, they're up all night, they're, they're sleeping on the floor, and, you know, they're doing all sorts of stuff, and they're typing in one command and saying, it's done, it worked. Automation <laughs> is a great thing, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Yeah, but it works very well. So you said uh, earlier in, in the cast that... Uh, the you, cast. The cast. <laughs> is that okay? Is that not the right term? Uh, no, we can say the cast or the pod. Either way, we're saving time. <laughs> Earlier, you spoke of um, parallel sysplex as something we kind of put together in the 90s, mm -hmm. right? It's now uh, 2017, right? Is it the same thing as it was back in the 90s? I think a person who uh, worked on parallel sysplex back in the 90s and, and stepped away from it for a while and, and came back today – uh, wouldn't recognize it. Huh. Um, there, there's been a, a constant evolution over over the intervening years. Um, so, so probably for the first uh, decade or so of that time, um, there was this big build out of exploitation. Right, the different IBM and and vendor middleware products were coming along and saying, "Oh, there's this great new technology, parallel sysplex." Um, what do I have to do to sysplex enable my middleware, my products, my data manager, my transaction subsystem, whatever the case may be? And and so during that first decade or so, there was a lot of um, broadening of the exploitation, right? As as we brought all all that different software up to you know full sysplex enablement. Then over the next. Uh, 10 years or so maybe, um, there, there was a lot of work done on um, enhancing the protocols. So, for example, uh, one of the big things we, we wanted to do was provide a redundancy mechanism in the coupling facility, um, which, you know, became known as CF duplexing, right? So that you can have multiple copies of the same structure containing the same contents uh, synchronously maintained in two different coupling facilities so that if one of them fails, it's very, very easy and very, very quick to recover just by failing over to the other duplexed copy, mm. right? So so we spent a lot of time and effort putting that um, 
duplexing mechanism together to provide the resiliency and, and the fast failover that we wanted to achieve. And then making, you know, extensions and enhancements to the, to the protocols around duplexing to make it as efficient as possible. And that, that work, uh, continues to this day, as, as a matter of fact. Um, we've also, um, had lots of requests from the middleware uh, groups over the years to provide new architecture capabilities, you know, something that they couldn't already do with their list structure that they wanted to do or some new cache function uh, for efficiency's sake, let's say. So, so you know, there's been that kind of build out. Uh, one of the most recent things we worked on uh, as part of the pervasive encryption work that's all the buzz these days. <laughs> yeah, we, we just had a we just had an interview with a Z14. It was very very exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of the pieces of work there was to take the uh, data flowing to and from the coupling facility and and the data at rest in the coupling facility mm-hmm. and put it under the umbrella of pervasive encryption. So yeah, um, in the new ZOS release, we have support for uh, host based encryption in ZOS where we take everything that's flowing out to the coupling facility, we encrypt it on the way out. Um, the other systems in the sysplex, when they take data out of the coupling facility, they decrypt it on the way back out and uh, so, so off we go. It begs the question, um, the, the way we've, we've always thought of the encryption on the mainframe is, is that always happens within uh, specialized hardware. Um, where are the keys in that model? Because each system has to have keys to that encrypted data, right? Mm-hmm. So do we do, do the systems share a key? Yeah. So so the way uh, we're doing it for for coupling facility encryption is um, we're acquiring the keys from ICSF. We're wrapping them in the master keys that the Sysplex is using. And we're uh, using our CFRM coupling facility resource management data set as a repository for those wrapped keys so that those keys are available and shared across the whole sysplex. Uh, that makes sense. So um, that's a little different than what the data set encryption folks are doing, right. but, but that's what uh, we're doing. So we get that sysplex scope that goes along with um, the sysplex sharing of the data in the coupling facility. So um, another imaginary world. Uh, Ginny has just walked in and given you carte blanche to do whatever you want to do. Uh, What what would be the future of parallel sysplex um, if you had unlimited everything? Where would it go? Um. Well, I think, I think one of the things that, um, I, I personally would like to see more of, and, and I'm actually working on some of these things, um, is to see parallel sysplex get more seamlessly integrated with some of our strategic directions that, uh, we're focused on now. Things like, um, cloud support in ZOS, things like, um, the analytics capabilities that we're, we're bringing over for machine learning and so forth, right? A lot of the focus in those areas so far has been um, around single system scope. And, and I think that um, as we go forward, we're going to 
sort of go back to our roots a little bit and hopefully integrate uh, the SysPlex capabilities that we have for high scalability and high availability uh, in with those uh, those new capabilities that we're bringing on to ZOS. I don't think we're quite there yet, but you know, I think over the next few years we'll get there. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. This has been, uh, I think, a really, really helpful, uh, at least for me, to understand better uh, how a parallel SysPlex works. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, thank guys. You. Thank you. Appreciate it. I think this will be one of those episodes that's extremely helpful to, to someone starting out on the platform or who's maybe been on it for a little while and hasn't had all their questions answered yet um, about parallel SysPlex and all the stuff that is key to the platform. Yeah, I don't think you can really move forward – uh, well, without understanding the kinds of things that David spoke today. Hey, Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of questions, hmm. uh, do we do we have time for a little segment here? Okay, what segment do you want to do? Uh, I was thinking about a little bit of a no, no dumb, dumb questions. questions. No dumb questions. So uh, I, I know that I should know this. Um, but I know that you'll do a good job of explaining it to me. Hmm. Um, so you know how there's kicks, yes, or CICS, mm-hmm. and you know how there's IMS mm-hmm. or IMS. <laughs> uh, two-part question: mm-hmm. um, What's the difference between them, and why would somebody use one and not the other? Is it like a Coke, Pepsi, Ford, Chevy, taste better, less filling kind of thing? Uh, good questions. Thank you. Good questions all, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start uh, with IMS since I think IMS is the older of the two environments. Mm-hmm. And remember, the point of the mainframe has always been how do I deal or how do I manage business data? So the focus here has always been around making business data more um, secure and yet available. Hmm. So the first one that came out is IMS for Information Management System. And basically this was an early development tool that allowed me to build a database, not just files, but a database and a hierarchical database um, obviously, a hierarchical model is similar to the one that you're used to in PCs. Uh, files and folders. Right. So that there's a, a hierarchy of things. This owns that, which which owns that. So IMS has its own database format. IMSDB okay. uh, was was the, the original way of storing data in IMS. Now, over time, you can connect to, to vSAM virtual sequential access method. Uh, data sets as well as DB2. But when you started with IMS, you did stuff in IMS DB. Okay. Now, I mentioned vSAM data sets. Uh, Kix utilizes vSAM much more. And the, the, the reason that's important is virtual se- sequential access method allowed me to do a key value model uh, very similar to what we're used to in NoSQL databases mm-hmm. today, this idea of saying, here's a key and here's some data associated with it. And it gave you a lot more flexibility. And this was used as, as file system access on the platform even before CICS. Yeah. So vSAM came out 
And the idea was, wouldn't it be cool if I could start managing the environment around these files in a very transactional way? Okay. So I want to be able to add different uh, pieces of data from different nodes because at this point we start getting to the point where the system allows a lot of people to touch the same data at the same time. I can start to containerize that data in a way that allows everybody to work on it without trouncing all over each other. So it enforces policies and order. Right. Okay. So not that IMS didn't enforce policy and order. It did, but it did it in a, in a fundamentally different way, right? Because okay. IMSDB was a fundamentally different way of looking at it, right? Now, over time, you start developing in, in one or another of these things, and one doesn't walk away from a model that you've been developing no. <laughs> over the course of, of years um, and in some case decades, right? So we have a, a large group of, of, of people using one or the other, and you just don't migrate off of it. I think if you look, especially as companies have grown and kind of merged, that a lot of companies have both. So this is kind of the method of abstracting business logic from presentation logic, which you're going to do in, in, any, in any model. Right. The, the key here in both of these tools is they provide more and more capabilities so that the programmer has to do less and less in order to um, get the kinds of qualities of service that they – are expected to provide on the mainframe. Yeah, one of the things Jay Brennerman talked about was the more that you handle the transactional and uh, order-keeping parts of your uh, platform or operating system, the less the application developer um, has to worry about or can screw up. Right. I mean, that's – you know, it's funny that, that today when we talk to people who, who are developing cloud applications – they inherently want the kinds of things that mainframe does. I want the system to deal with what happens to the data. I want the system to manage security. And I really don't want my application programmers involved in those things. And that's a good thing because application programmers have one job. They have to get function out. And when we ask them to do security, when we ask them to do data management, when we ask them to do these other things, we're actually – slowing them down on the thing that, that mm. we're trying to pay them to do, right? Yeah. So environments like Kix and, and, and IMS allow us at the time and, – and I would say these are environments that have developed as the mainframe has developed over the decades to provide more and more capability to application programmers on the platform to be able to do things that – the platform just does inherently. And that's really what makes this so cool. As we go forward, as we provide uh, the ability to turn these things into APIs and we give them the ability to to um, take what people are used to on, on the cloud and make that available, that capability available on the platform, you really start to see uh, what the machine can do in terms that people that don't live on the platform can suddenly realize. And, and you, you were mentioning, you know, IMS did this, Kix did this. That's purely from a 
a historical standpoint, these these are things that have been in constant development since their inception because they are so valuable. Uh, and and you know, if, if you attend a, a mainframe conference or a tech conference, you'll hear about the new updates in this quarter, uh, this quarter's edition of this platform. So yeah, I, I want to make sure people know that this is not purely a, a historical thing, but um, it's one of those things I definitely wanted to ask about because in order to understand why decisions are made today, sometimes it's important to understand how something started. Right. And and it's not really saying that one is better than the other. No. Uh, what it really is saying is that they approach solving the problem in two different ways. Both are valid. Both are, are used today uh, by large customers. Um, and, the, and the thing is that most customers have one or both. And you have to really understand the whole of the problem set that you're trying to solve to understand why they're using both. Well, I feel a little less dumb now. So <laughs> thank you very much, Frank. Well, thank you. I, I hope I helped. I hope that uh, I hope the, re- the listeners feel uh, the same way as we bring Episode 9 to a close. Morning. So, uh, great. Thank you for listening to Episode 9 of Terminal Talk. I think you probably had the opportunity to enjoy uh, what Dave had to say, and hopefully uh, we didn't um, bore you with what I had to say. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Um, Just a gentle reminder, use Twitter, uh, Twitter at Terminal Talk, where uh, we also hang out on Reddit. So we read whatever is written uh, generally about us and a few, couple other choice subreddits out there. So uh, drop us a line there. Please don't be shy. And, uh, you know, anything you can do to help spread the word uh, definitely helps. Thanks. Here's old man Charlie. Play us out. <laughs> You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.